Um, at South Point Church, we say that we are a committed church. We're committed to a lot of things. We're committed to God's word, committed to the gospel, committed to community. Um, we're also committed to obedience. And we have these word pictures, and we've got them out on a poster outside, but our word picture for obedience, if you're familiar, it's not like a band logo or anything, it's a Venn diagram. If you're familiar with a Venn diagram, you take all these circles and you put them together, and typically what you want, if it's a positive thing, is you want to find yourself in that middle circle. The question becomes today, what if all the circles just showed up at one time and you had never heard of them before? Because when we talk about obedience, and I believe this is a big part of discipleship, how do you define, am I being discipled? Well, if you're being obedient to the things that God has called you to do, you are being discipled. You're growing, you're walking, you'll feel that, you'll know that you're being able to glorify God, it will drive everything in your life. That's what obedience does. And we know that we've been called to obedience in a number of different things, in the way that we love, the way that we give, the way that we share, all of that. And we put them together, but what if all the circles just showed up one day and you had never heard of them? Because that's how the story is going for these Israelites. Remember, they had had so many, we think 2020 was crazy last year. They have had this massive, massive shift in their entire life structure in the span of a couple of months. Remember, they were enslaved and suddenly Nehemiah shows up and he rebuilds this wall and people start moving into the city and God starts moving. And all of this happens in a really, really quick time. And some of these people for the first time are hearing God's word. They'd been enslaved. They had no access to it. The best that they had was maybe just someone orally telling them a story of what God had done or how creation happened. And then one day, man, they start hearing God's word. And they read it for hours and hours and hours. And it just pours over them. And they fall in love with him. And they fall in love with it. What happens is all these areas of obedience suddenly show up. And they now have to make the decision, what are we going to do with that? And we saw a couple weeks ago, they had prayed through some things. And then they begin to put their names and make a covenant with God. And we're going to get to see how they had three pretty radical changes in their lives today. Um, and also, it's one of those sermons where you've heard me say, typically at South Point, we just kind of walk through a book. And we just kind of go verse by verse through it. What happens is there's nothing that I get to avoid. And so it's also one of those times where it's like, are you trying to like work that in? No, I'm just going to read today. Um, and then we'll keep going. So just a heads up on that. Let's start. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 1. I'm not even trying to read that. <laughs> um, we're going to cover an entire chapter today. I have spent several months on one chapter before when I'm preaching. So if you're a little nervous right now, like, are we getting lunch today? You will, because 27 of those verses are really just names that I'm not going to attempt to read. Um, but we're true to Scripture, so you can see them. Try saying those in your head real fast. Yeah, it's, I'm redneck from East Texas. I'm not trying. But I want to say this. First 27 verses of chapter 10 are names of people who had said, you know what, we're making a commitment to be obedient. And if you go back a couple weeks to Easter, I gave probably the most different Easter message I've ever done because it was on a genealogy chapter out of Nehemiah. But we said, hey, these people's names, they may not mean a lot to us right now. We see them and we, we try and figure out how to pronounce half of them, but they were a part of a story. These names were important because they were part of a story of God bringing his people back together and igniting a fire in them for who he was. And these names that we go, man, I just don't know that much about that person. What I know is this, they were part of the story, a story that God was doing several thousand years ago that continues to today. And so one day when I get to heaven, I walk up to Hannon, because I can pronounce that one, and just say, hey, tell me, tell me how you, your name got in the Bible. And he's going to start to gush and go, man, I was a part of what Nehemiah was doing, and I wanted to be committed to who God was, and that's huge. This is the big part of the story. 
God is still continuing this story today. But the bulk of what we're going to look at is going to start in verse 28. Verse 28, it says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, as this starts, it says the rest of the people. This is an entire nation coming together to say, you know what? There's some things that we didn't even know, but we've now heard God's word, and we are all going to be committed to that. They had made this covenant, and some of them had written their names on it, and then we just looked over all the other names. But it says all the people. This wasn't just the people in charge or people high up. This was all of the people coming together and saying, you know what? We've heard God's word, and we're radically in love with it. And we see that there's been things in our lives that we have not been doing, but now we're hearing that these are commandments, and we're going to be committed to following them. And there's a part that sounds kind of weird. It says we enter into a curse and an oath. Um, don't think weird kind of curse. Like sometimes you hear that, and it's like, I'm all about God's grace, but you start talking about curses, maybe not so much. Um, this was them understanding the commitment that they were making. They understood we are going to walk into a covenant with God that we are going to listen and obey his words. And in a covenant, if you come to our new member class, we talk about this a good bit. Covenants usually have some sort of symbol. And this one they said, not only do we understand that there's the promise of God if we follow it, but we also understand there's a consequence if we don't. Now, luckily, God is gracious because there's some covenants in the Old Testament, not to be real graphic if you love animals, they'd take an animal and split it in half, and you would walk in between it. And what it signified was, if I break my portion of the covenant, this can be done to me. Now, thankfully, we live in a time of grace, and you're not going to find any cows around here like that. But these people understood, hey, we understand there's a promise from God, but there's also going to be consequence. But we're committed to following that. And the first thing they said, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Dedication to God affects our relationships. This was the first radical change for these people. And the first radical change that they made was, hey, we're not going to let our sons marry people. When it says people of the land, that means people that were not Israelites, were not Jewish. We're not going to let them marry and we're not going to take their daughters for our sons anymore. Now let me demyth something real quick. Growing up, I'm not joking, some of you probably heard it too, I have heard preachers from a stage say, you know what, what this means is there can be no intermarriage, interrace marriage, and let me, I heard you, (laughs) let me tell you, that is a lie from hell. (laughs) That is not what this is saying. This is not meant to be some racist thing of saying, well, you can't have a person of this race marrying a person of this race. That is not what this is saying. If anyone tells you that, it's just a lie from hell. But what this is saying is they understood, hey, we have a history of marrying people from other cultures that don't worship the divine God, and it has a history of pulling us away from God. That's what this is talking about. This is saying, hey, you need to understand, and your devotion to God, it will have an effect on your relationship to where I didn't come up with this, I wish I did, but think of a relationship as a triangle, man, woman, and God at the top. As you both grow closer to God, what happens? You grow closer together. 
This is what he was saying. We understand that we have a history. If you look at the Jewish history, they have got a history of getting in relationships with people that did not worship the holy God, and it had a big effect on them. Take Samson for an instance. Samson's got a pretty cool story. Like, Spirit of God just descends on him, and suddenly he's like the Hulk. I've prayed those prayers. God, it's a big basketball game coming up. Like, Spirit could just descend on me, and maybe I could shoot like Kobe and jump like Jordan. That would be awesome. It didn't work out like that for me. But... This is pretty cool stories. And then you get Delilah. <laughs> and she pulls him away from God. It ultimately leads to his death. Solomon was the most wise human being to ever live. But even with all that wisdom, <laughs> he had 700 wives. <laughs> A lot of them from very different cultures that pulled him away from God. This is what Scripture is trying to teach these people. Hey, your relationships are important. We're all looking for that. And you need to put such an importance that it still stays focused on God. And don't let other things pull you away from that. And so we keep relationships God-centered. This was a time where Ezra, who's shown up in this book, he had actually written a book and he talks a lot about, hey, this is one of the reasons we keep failing as a society is we're letting everything pull us away from God. We haven't been obedient and so we've experienced the punishment and our relationships need to be focused on who God is so that we draw closer to God and the people that we love and are in a relationship with grow closer to him as well. And then it continues on, verse 31. He says, and if the people of the land, the people of the land being anybody that's not Jewish, if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and extraction of every debt. This is the second radical change that they had. Dedication to God involves worship. The people understood this. Some of them, again, they are hearing this for the first time, that there is this Sabbath. There is a day that they have been called to rest and worship. A day of remembrance where we point things back to who God is. Man, that's a call that I'm really happy for. Like some commandments in the Bible, they're difficult. Patience is not something that I am really good with. But if there's a commandment that says, hey, I want you to rest, awesome, I'll take that one. And the people said, we haven't been doing that. That's a pretty easy one to follow, but we haven't been doing it. And again, some of this obligation and some of the stuff that they're doing, not so much obligation, but the obedience aspect, in order to be obedient at times, we have to acknowledge there's areas that we're not. This is a group of people coming together, radically changed by God, Enough to the point where they said, look, we will acknowledge we have not been doing these things. But we'll acknowledge it, but we also want to change. Because they had people coming in from other areas, and some of this wasn't bad stuff. People were just coming in to sell them things. They weren't overcharging them. It's, this wasn't a neglect or an abuse, but people would just show up, and they went, you know what? We'll, we'll go out, and we'll buy, and we'll do all this stuff on the Sabbath. Some of it was really important. They were bringing in grain. Remember, you didn't go to the grocery store during this day and age. If someone was selling grain and you needed it, that was a good time to buy it. But they understood there's something more important than commerce, and it's obedience. Obedience and having a time where we dedicate and we worship God. You know who understands this really, really well? Chick-fil-A. 1947, Esther at Kathy starts this little restaurant called The Dwarf House. I've had the opportunity to eat there. It's weird. Um, because originally it was an actual restaurant with a full menu, and she, you go in expecting Chick-fil-A, and there's a hamburger. And it, it's like growing up without music and then going to church that has music. It's just very, very strange. But man, pretty successful, pretty good chicken sandwich, gospel bird. You don't even have to pray at Chick-fil-A. It's already pre-blessed. 
And so that company is growing and growing and growing. But this is a man that knew Christ and said, you know what? We're going to be closed on Sunday. I want to give time for my employees to be able to worship. It's not that they have to. You don't have to be a Christian to work at Chick-fil-A, but there's a lot of believers that work there. And he said, I want to give a day where they can dedicate it back to God and have a time to worship either alone with their families. Man, in the business world, Chick-fil-A is doing pretty good. Like, I don't want to add up how much money my family spends at Chick-fil-A every year. But think of how much more money they could make. I think it's KFC has more restaurants than Chick-fil-A, and yet Chick-fil-A is like five times the profit than any other chicken place. Well, what if they were open on Sunday as well? Man, that would go up even higher. That is the American business model, right? But they say, no, we're, we're not worried about that. We're going to be committed to allowing the time for rest and Sabbath. So what does that look like for us today? It's what we're doing right now. It's believers coming together to say, you know what? We will not forsake the gathering of believers. We are here to worship. We are here to cry out to who God is and praise him for all that he's blessed us with. And I love days like today, man. Y'all did such a good job. Like, I preach and pray. Singing is not really my thing. Um, and so a lot of times I'll sit in the back and I'll kind of be looking over notes and I'll just, I'll just close my eyes and listen to y'all. Because I think that's going to be a little picture of heaven. See, this is us coming together to focus on the fact that God has been gracious to us and is loving and has provided so much. What this can't be is a club. And too many times, especially in like modern evangelical American culture, that's what church has been regulated to. It's kind of a club, place to hang out, make business contacts. Sometimes it's turned into a hobby. Church is a terrible hobby, right? You got to get up early on Sunday. You got to get dressed up and get your kids there. Probably going to talk about money. We're going to do that in a minute. It's going to be fun. I mean, this is a terrible hobby. But when it's a group of people coming together, and I love every Sunday just walking around, seeing faces, shaking hands, and going, hey, this is my family. Like, these are not only just friends. Like, this is our family coming together to cry out to who God is. This is our family coming together and saying, you know what? God has blessed us and equipped us with gifts, and they're being used right now. It's about coming together and knowing, hey, we're making an impact over there. Right now, little kids are being told Bible stories. They're being told the gospel. They're being encouraged. And here's the beautiful part of that. They're going to grow up. 60 years from now, when a bunch of us aren't here, but they are, and they're teaching kids, man, what an impact. The things that are happening today are affecting generations to come. And that's what happens when the body comes together and we celebrate. But this can't just be some obligation. This has got to be us coming together and saying, hey, I actually find rest in this. I find rest when I walk in and I know it's been a tough week and I get to see some people and talk to them. I find rest in this when, man, everything is crazy at home, but I come here and I just feel the Spirit of God moving. These people were radically changed. I pray that we are too. That we don't just see this as something that we do out of obligation, but, man, we get excited to come and be a part of a local church focused on who God is and making his name known. And then there's the other one. Verse 32. It says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. 
For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin sin offering to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, uh, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring out the first of our dough and our contributions and the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with all the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. That was a lot of reading. Now, here's where sometimes people go, all they ever talk about at church is money. Uh, I don't think we do that very often, but when we go through it verse by verse, you can't get around it. And I know it's like the elephant in the room anytime people start talking about this. When I first got to South Point, this made me anxious to talk about money. And I've kind of repented of that because I shouldn't be anxious about teaching anything in the Bible. And so the longest section here, the biggest area where they were radically changed is they realized, hey, we have, we have been blessed by God, but we have not been contributing back to make sure that worship is possible at the temple. And so here's how this looks. They look out and understand this is going to require a good bit. There's a whole host of things we just read off there that they were going to give for. Showbread, grain and burnt offerings, festivals, sin offering, wood for the altar, first fruits, tithes. This is a lot. This is a people that understood, hey, this is going to take all of us coming together. Because they heard the commandments as they were read earlier. They understood, hey, that we're supposed to be giving so that worship can happen at the temple. We're supposed to be giving so that, you know what, even the wood, they said, hey, we're going to cast lots because there's an altar that's going to be burning all the time. Somebody's got to bring the wood for it. And so we're going to be committed and we're going to break that up. And as a group, we're going to make that happen. And they gave and they gave and they gave because they understood this was an act of worship. You also kind of have to understand the system of the day. This was not a full monetary system. Like they had some form of what we would call currency, but the way that they gave was often things that they had. And so they would bring in an animal and make it as an offering. That's really how history has operated for a really long time. Like even in like Roman times, whenever they had currency, there was one point their currency was really weird. And they had an emperor named Diocletian. He's in my top five because I'm a nerd. Um, he realized, hey, we got to change this up. So the way that he would tax the people, he'd go to him and say, hey, what's your profession? I'm a pig farmer. All right, three pigs is one tax payment. Okay, what do you do? I make shoes. Five shoes is one tax payment. And so that's how this happened for a long, long time. Let's take it into today's age. We are a currency system. <laughs> like no one has shown up for an offering at South Point Church and said, I have this cow. I want you to take it. Because I don't know what to do. Well, I know what I would do with it, but, like, that's going to be dinner. Um, somebody will try it now. There were some ducks outside earlier. Somebody in first service said, if I bring those over, does that count? I'm like, no, they're cute. They can stay over there. But we operate in a currency system. We have debit cards. We have cash. That's how things work today. And so now let's take this forward into 2001. 
Are we called to give? Yes. Now, if you've been here for a little while, and again, we don't talk about this all the time, but when it comes to today's day and age, like we don't, we don't have a sin offering atonement um, tab that you can give towards. Uh, we don't have a showbread tab that you can click on in giving. Uh, we have like general giving and things like that, straining towards the goal. Uh, when it comes to tithes and things like that, most of you, if you grew up in church, you probably are familiar with the term tithe, meaning tenth, that we give one-tenth of what we earn, and that's what we give to God. Um, if you've been here a little while, I don't believe in tithing. That may be really weird, and it's online so the whole world can see it, um, but I'm the pastor of a church, and I don't believe in tithing. I grew up, I was taught it, I've taught it before, um, and usually I make the same joke every time. Most of the time when people hear that, they go, we don't have to tithe at this church. This is the church for me. Spirit's moving. I knew God called us here. Um, I don't believe in tithing, but I 100% believe in giving. In the New Testament, now that we are a New Testament church, tithe is used like once with Jesus. And he's referring back to the Old Testament. Tithes were a definite thing in the Old Testament. What most people don't understand is that was not all the giving in the Old Testament. You gave a tenth. You also had other offerings, festivals, and things like that. If you added it up, an Israelite would spend about 25% of their income in giving. Um, and then people are like, well, that's really high. Let's not talk about that. Let's go back to 10%. So you get to the New Testament, and it's never really referenced. But all throughout the New Testament, giving is. Jesus talks about it. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Paul, as he becomes a missionary and travels across Europe and Asia, there are times where there are churches that are in dire need. They're being persecuted. And he reaches out to believers in different areas. And there's one point he reaches out to a church that is just desperately poor. And they hear that somebody else is hurting, and they're like, we want to give to that. We want to give sacrificially. We want to make sure that no one else is hurting because the gospel calls for more. If we have been radically changed by the gospel, man, the gospel calls for more. And so when it comes to giving, which I know, that's a tough area for a lot of people. It's hard. Like, we live in a society where you have to have money. That's just a reality. And then you go to church, and they're talking about, oh, we're supposed to give some of that away? Like, taxes? This is not a tax. This is a giving because the gospel has done so much in our lives. And we realize that, hey, when we give, it is not just for giving's sake. It makes an impact. It lets us be a church in this area. It lets us be a church across the globe. And so the church in the Old Testament had needs. 2021, church still does. Some of them are weird to talk about because I'm involved in them. Like, we pay our staff. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> and I always tell everybody, like, I want us to do that well. Like, I don't set mine. So if you're like, no, of course you'd say that. No, that's, I don't do that. Jeff and Terry, they take care of that. Everybody else, I'm like, I want to pay them as much as we possibly can. Because <laughs> they work really hard. I love them. I love working with our staff. I love what they do, and I love their heart, and I love the way they lead. And so we have those requirements. We have missionaries that we support literally across the globe. So when you give at South Point, it's literally changing someone's life whose name you don't know, and you may not know until the other side of heaven. We also say we want to be really transparent in what we do. And so when it comes to giving, every year, usually in January, we'll have a business meeting. You want to find out anything that we spend money on, come talk to us. We're an open book. You're not going to find jet payments and things like that. 
Um, I don't have a Batmobile out back, anything like that, but we want to be really open and honest. We have an accountant that comes in and does, uh, looks over everything for us and makes sure that, hey, if there are areas that we could do better in, we do. Like, that's big for us. 2020 was also our biggest giving year in a long time. 2020 was a crazy year, right? <laughs> this is what God does, though. And so we get to support missionaries. We've got different ministries. Like I said earlier, right now, there's kids back there. They're learning about Jesus. I love it. Here in a couple months, we're going to have VBS. I can't wait for that. Allison had some great ideas. We're going to get so many big machines for that thing and put them out there, and I'm probably going to play on them because I'm still a little kid. And, man, that's going to impact lives. Kids are going to do mission stuff. Students are going to do mission trips. We think things like the pantry. Yesterday, we had the opportunity to reach out to our neighbors and be a blessing to them. I was talking with one lady. She says, yeah, I have two different rooms. There are three of us living in our house because we just can't afford to live on our own. And sometimes food's hard. This is what's coming from her. And we're able to put a box of food to help support her in there. That's what happens when we give. We have the opportunity for relief. There's times where people go, hey, man, it was a hard month. Things came up. My electricity's about to get turned off. Can y'all, can y'all help? And I love whenever we can say yes. We had a call this week. There's a lady that was calling and needing some help. And pretty quickly I realized, no, it's actually a buddy of mine who will call and do that sometimes um, as a joke. Um, one time he called, and there's this guy that I'm talking to, and he's needing some money. I was like, yeah, well, we can try and help you. He's like, I just want cash. I'll just come up there and get cash. I'm like, well, we don't really do that. Um, and then he starts questioning, like, well, you don't love Jesus. And, like, the pastor part of me was like, get out or, you know, taking a sidestep to the angry part of me. And then I realized it's a friend of mine pranking me. This is what pastors do when they're not working. But there's so many times that we get the opportunity to reach out and be a blessing to people. And then things like straining towards the goal. It's looking a lot better out there. How is that possible? People giving. Does that make an impact? Yeah. Someone was telling me that they had a friend, they were driving by, their daughter was four years old, and goes, hey, that church looks better. <laughs> a four-year-old gets it. I've got another friend I was talking to yesterday. He's at a church that's kind of like a church plant. They had to come into this building that was given to them, and they did a good bit of renovation on it. And people just started coming because they said, man, we've lived in this community for a long time, and it's good to see that something's happening with this place. One guy told him, I went to vacation Bible school here, and I thought this place was going to shut down. Yeah, that makes an impact. It's our opportunity to reach out to others. And then there's always future stuff. Love to see more people working here. Love to see new ministries starting. But it's going to take all of us coming together in that. This was a group of people that thousands of years ago looked and said, hey, we haven't been walking in obedience in that one. But we're going to do it. We're committing to it. And I know today in our day and age, sometimes that's hard. So there's times where we've talked about things that we call a generosity letter. Like if you've never given, take a baby step. Just give something. And, and give not just for the heck of it. Because we know we've been called in this. Because we know that it's pushing back darkness in other areas. And then take a next step and be a consistent giver. Someone that says, you know what, I'm, I'm giving because I know that I've been blessed. You can work your way up. The top rung is called a radical giver. Someone says, you know what, I'm making an investment for a long time in the future. That's what straining towards a goal is. We said, hey, that's above and beyond what we normally give so that we can make an impact in our community. And so you start taking all those circles. And for these people, all the circles just showed up at one time. 
Oh, so I'm supposed to like be committed to God in my relationships and I'm supposed to be worshiping him and I'm supposed to be giving in a way that makes an impact. Okay, let's put all the circles together. They just made that decision really quickly. And so many times in our day and age where we have all the circles, we say, hey, I'll, I'll take this circle and I'll mix it with this circle, but this one's really hard. <laughs> and it can be different for everybody. Some people, forgiving is the easiest thing in the world. And for some people, it's really difficult. And it's hard to move that circle in. For some people, patience is a hard one to move in. Sometimes it's love, sometimes it's whatever. But we have been called to take all of those and put them together, walking in obedience in all of these areas. Because when we do, man, the impact that we make, one personally, is walking and going, you know what, it's not about me, I'm able to point everything back to God, man, that feels really good. And then to watch what God does in your life and blessing and the, and the opportunity to reach out and see lives changed. This is what happens when we put all those together. So my prayer for us this week, whatever that circle might be that's difficult for you, I pray that God will begin to move in it. I pray that you would see obedience to him is greater than struggling with this. Put them all together and you'll see that it's good. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, sometimes obedience is difficult because we've never taken a first step in knowing you. New Testament tells us that without you, there's nothing we can do to please you. Obedience is impossible. And that's why I'm very thankful for Jesus. that you loved us enough to send your son who would live a sinless life and then lay it down to pay the price for my sin and for the world's sin. No more sacrifices needed, it's just Jesus. And if that's never been something that's been personal for you where you say, you know what, I realize that the things I'm doing, they're far from God. I'm trying everything to fix myself and it's not working. But every time you say, Jesus, something just kind of stirs inside you, I pray that you know that's the Holy Spirit moving. And if you've never made that personal, whether in here or online, and today you say, I, I need him. I would pray, God, as best as I know how, I want to come to you. I want to turn away from my old life. I want to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of my life. If you did that today, man, we want to celebrate that. I would encourage you, put that on a connect card. Talk to me after service. We want to celebrate God moving in people's lives. And God, as we go forward this week, I pray that we would be committed to obedience, God. God, we'd see you as so much better than anything else and just continue to fall deeper in love with you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.